You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. Hi, I'm Lee. I'm Mark. And I'm Simon. Lee, that's not really you, is it? You're an imposter, aren't you? Might be. You're not covered in, like, cactus scales by any chance, are you? Not the last time I looked, no. Okay, so, Lee, who are you really? I'm Andrew. Andrew Smith. And... Andrew, why are you here instead of Lee? Uh, because we're going to be talking about season 18, aren't we? And I forced you. There's that as well. <laughs> I yes. demanded you were here for this podcast, which was very, <laughs> very naughty of me, wasn't it? Let's be honest. A little bit, a little bit. It, it didn't take too much coercion. Uh, this is going to be fun then, because as you pointed out, season 18 is not one of my favourite moments of Doctor Who. So I've picked up. But Mm. I don't think I'm nearly as down on it as my public persona, or whatever you want to call it, would seem to suggest. Well, we're about to find out. Well, no, you're not, because I've also decided I'm not going to do any talking (laughs) on this podcast. I think I talk far too much. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Rumbled. (laughs) Okay, but what's going to happen is, well, obviously our listeners, as always, have uh, voted for the stories in Season 18, and we will do them in reverse order of greatness. Uh, We've got two very... Reverse order... Whatever. We've got two very short emails to get through first. Uh, But before we get through the emails, I have heard it put about that one of the things we do on this podcast is try to look for the good in the bad. That has been said. No, it has not been said. Not by me. It's not about looking for the good in the bad. It's about understanding the bad. Understanding the reasons why certain things aren't as great as the people making them would like them to be. Because nobody who works on anything is attempting to create anything less than the greatest story that's ever been shown. It just doesn't always happen that way. So, if I'm not a particularly big fan of season 18... Tonight, instead of saying, oh, that's rubbish, oh, that's rubbish, I will be attempting to understand the reasons why I might not necessarily like certain things as much. But what I will also be doing is looking at the parts of the stories. You know what? I'm going to cut myself off there. I promised to talk less, didn't I? Yeah, look how long that lasted. Yeah, but but we didn't believe it, (laughs) so carry on. Okay, that's fair enough. Took it with a pinch of salt. Okay, two very quick emails. The first one is from The Great Intelligence, and he says, With my Yeti, I will control you all. (coughs) I need a drink of water now. He didn't actually. You need to give up the fags. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody called The Great Intelligence, said, Thanks to the Rubbish Monsters edition of the podcast, I have purchased, am watching, and I am enjoying The Dominators. Ooh. Hooray. Yeah. 
Which is as it should be. Yeah. Not mm. wrong with that. And we've also I remember watching that. Oh, back when, when it was first on. Absolutely. When I was a little boy, I had a dream or nightmare about quarks. Haven't we all? Really? Very fond memories, yeah. I was about seven, I think. Oh, you see, perfect yeah. age. Yeah. I think Very jealous. I think if everybody had been seven when they saw the Dominators for the first time, everybody would love it. Yeah. Okay, Gary mm. Akers says, JR, I loved your season 24 podcast and wanted to give you and the guys my belated ranking of the four gems of this season. Mm. However... In lieu of a discussion of each story, I thought I'd give you a list of the four most excruciating medical procedures from least worst to absolute worst and correlate them with the stories. <laughs> in fourth position, a spinal tap, Delta and the Bannermen. In oh, third position, oh. <laughs> third position having four impacted wisdom teeth removed without, with, without sufficient Novocaine, Paradise Towers. In second position, passing 15 kidney stones, Dragonfire. <laughs> and in first position, anything involving a catheter, which would be time in the Rani. Yours, Ganakas. <laughs> well, well done with finding the good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Do you know, that actually sings to me because one of the worst things I ever had done was a spinal tap. And of course, Delta is my nemesis. So that uh, it speaks to me. That little uh, connection there. That's that's perfect. Thank you very much. Delta and Abanaman, the spinal tap of Doctor Who. Oh, I, I felt nauseous for two weeks. I felt nauseous for two weeks after having a spinal tap. So there you go. Oh, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> okay. And I do. I do like Paradise Towers. But anyway, moving on. <clears throat> I love Paradise Towers. Yes. Yeah. Moving on, we've got seven stories to talk about, which is mm. quite a few <clears throat> stories. And uh, we have got six pages of comments that people left on Facebook for us. I have no idea if we're going to have time to do the comments. So if we don't get time to do the comments, thank you everybody for writing them. And we do try and include them when we can, but we've got a lot to get through. So without further ado, the story that the listeners of the Blue Box podcast voted last, voted least favourite, in not last but least favorite, which is favorite but less favorite than the other <laughs> Get six on stories. With it. <laughs> well, would anybody like to guess? I I'm afraid to guess. <laughs> I would probably guess Megalos. Yeah, you're right. It's yeah. Megalos. Guys, oh, I got a soft spot for that one. Well, I yeah. just can I just say that um, I watched Megalos for the first time last night, I'd never seen it before. Um, well, yes, I just wanted, you can I just say wanted that. to reassure that, Andrew Simon. that just before you <laughs> just before you announce <laughs> just before you announced that I wanted to reassure Andrew that I I I watched it so late that I didn't get my vote in so uh, his story's safe. Phew. <laughs> oh. Should I put you on the spot now and ask you Ooh, where you voted evil. full circle? Sorry, where I put full circle? Yes. Ooh, being completely honest. No, I would say no. Okay, you don't. Second or third, oh. I think, possibly third. If I'm being honest, I'll that. Oh, Andrew, hmm. like a knife yeah. to the heart. No, no. Like I say, I rate, I rate the whole series. But uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. 
I'll we'll tell you what. I'll tell you which one or two I put ahead of it later on. Okay. Right. Well, yeah. We'll, we'll get to full circle anyway. Next. Mm. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't. Actually, JR no. Let's talk fine. about Megalos. No, 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 no. Let's go more Megalos. Come on. Yeah, come on, mm. guys. Let's talk about Megalos. <clears throat> Simon, then you watched it very recently. You'd never seen it before. Yeah. As a forty-seven-year-old man watching Megalos for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. I should be crying. <laughs> what did you make of it? Oh my god, it's a mess, isn't it? But it's full of, it's a lovely mess. It's like a pizza of stuff that doesn't fit. Yeah. Isn't it? it really is it's all over the place. There's some lovely things happening, and you're not sure why they're happening. But I, I, do you know what it's like um oh who was that filmmaker who made Plan Nine from Outer Space? Oh Ed Ed Edward? Johnny Depp Edward. played him, didn't he? Edward. 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 It's like it's like Doctor <clears throat> Who directed by Edward. It's just really, really odd. It's all over the place. It's little sections that don't quite fit together. And then you get something odd like a cactus, which, you know, obviously everyone talks about. But but then you you just get these odd things happening, like the time loop and then how they get out of the time loop and um you know, yeah, Doctor Who fans always go on about plot holes and I get really sick of them going about plot holes, but this had plot black holes didn't it it it's just so much of it didn't I add up I, I, I really enjoyed I think it at it, least but... start i think it at least starts very well mm. um mm. i like say some some lovely sequences in it and i i, I think the sequences of the you know the images of the you know the the dots are covered in cactus spikes and fighting with the earthling and um whatnot yeah it's a very intriguing setup i mean actually i rewatched the first episode tonight with my daughter she hadn't seen it before um uh, and I think that 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 draws you in. It mm. maybe doesn't necessarily deliver completely, but um, it's uh, yeah, again, I yeah, I've got a soft spot for it. My biggest problem with Meglas, and I have a bit of a soft spot for it too. I think I voted it fourth out of the seven. My biggest problem with it is in the Terence Dix book. In order to flesh it out, because it's quite a short one. He put a prologue and an epilogue on with the Earthling where they kidnapped him from outside his house. Mm. And when he got put back at the end, mm-hmm. I'm sure he did. It's so many years since I've read it, but I seem to remember that. And then, you know, I'd obviously seen it on TV, but I was young. And then when I watched it on VHS and the prologue and the epilogue weren't there, I was very disappointed. Mm. So basically, mm. you're disappointed with something that really doesn't count as far as the actual program itself. Yeah, fair point, but, you know... I, I have the same experience with Day of the Daleks. I mean, mm. I watched that going out, but I read the book, Yeah. and then when the VHS came out, I was disappointed that we didn't have the scene at the end where the Doctor and Joe return yeah. to the mm. lab and see themselves. Yeah. You know, the, the resolution of the scene from the first episode. And where... But that's another season. And where was Shuey McPherson at the start of Invasion of the Dinosaurs? Yeah. That is just not right. You mean Shuey McPhee? Oh, Shuey McPhee, whatever he's called. Get your Scottish stereotypes right, Jay. Oh, come on. Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a soft spot for Megloss. Uh, I think season 18, the impression I get as a whole is that Tom isn't really enjoying it as much. And he seems to relish the idea of being able to play the bad guy as well. The characters... I'm pretty sure with Megalos, Megalos is the one um, where he'd, he'd been ill mm. uh, just before. Mm-hmm. 
and I think it kind of shows, um, which might explain part of it. And he was ill, I think, on that, and in State of the Decay, mm-hmm. which was filmed before Full Circle. I think it was filmed after Megalos. Mm. Mm. Didn't he have I, a problem I, with his hair or something? They had to perm it because he lost all the curls from his hair and things. Yeah. yeah. That's Poor guy. Mm. <laughs> but no, I've got a soft spot for it. And of course, you got got... Um, uh, Jacqueline Hill. Um, oh, yeah. Jacqueline Hill, She's yes. Great. Yeah. yeah. Jacqueline Hill. Really oh, dear. Yeah. I nearly said that as well. That's why I was pausing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great to see her back in the show again. Do you know what? Going back to what you were saying about um, the direction, Simon. Yeah. That was directed by Terence Dudley. Really? Yeah. And he is, well, as Andrew will tell you, because we were talking about Terence Dudley last week. We certainly were. Yeah, Terence Dudley is like an old pro. Mm. But then mm. again, rather like, um, oh, can't remember his name, the guy who directed Nightmare of Eden, who got taken off it. He was an old pro as well. Mm. I'm looking it up now. Alan Bromley. I've got my book in mm. front of me. I can never remember directors. I always remember writers, <laughs> but not directors. Alan Bromley. I remember I'm, I, I sat in the, the uh, for some of the editing of Megalos. Oh really? Um, and I met Terence Dudley sat there in a in a jacket and a shirt and tie, which even then that was kind of old school. Yeah, you know, some of the, you know a director in a shirt and tie and a and a, and a jacket. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I think I think maybe he just wasn't of the right mindset for Doctor Who, maybe because mm. his scripts that he wrote for the following season mm. don't quite seem to get it either. What's... Although I like Fort of Doomsday. What's the with... um? Is it is it chroma key that new technique they were using? You know when you got the the um. Uh, well, the pan- chroma chrom- chrom- key chroma key wasn't new, but what was new for that was the ability to move the camera. With, yeah, uh, with chroma key. It. There's that lovely panning yeah. shot when they get out of the ship. That's really Motion really good. That's it. That was uh. For that might have been the sequence I saw in the editing mm. suite because I remember John talking to me about it. This the the new uh technology they had that enabled them to do that. Uh, it was quite groundbreaking at the time. It essentially came out of the motion control that um, George Lucas had developed for Star Wars, mm-hmm. didn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, computer-controlled mm-hmm. cameras. Yeah. yeah. And this, uh, I th- I'm sure, even though I was pretty young when Megalos was on, I was aware of the, that fact, even then, that Star Wars had done this thing. I think I was already reading Starburst by this point, so this is probably where I picked it up. I was aware that Star Wars had developed this motion control for the effects. Because you could watch 2001 on the telly and all the cameras during the effect sequences would be stock still. And then you go to the pictures and see Star Wars and the cameras are panning around. Mm. And it's mm. obvious that something's happened. I've just looked and this I, up and um, it's called Scene Sync, apparently. Scene Sync, that's it. Mm. And you've got and two, two cameras that move proportionally mm. with each other. So the yeah. camera on the miniature set is moving in proportion to the one on the full size on the actor's. Because in Robots of Death, when they tried something similar, but without having the cameras synced, uh, there's like a pan up in the control room and the monitor at the top of the control room is on CSO and they both move up at different times. So the person who's on the monitor, his head's bobbing up and down in the shot. I think that's Robots of Death. Mm. Um, Megloss, it's a little... Of the stories of season 18... Christopher Bidmead's come in, John Nathan Turner's come in, and you know this better than anybody. There's kind of, Andrew, there's kind of a, a bit of a clean sweep, a new broom. Absolutely, yeah. And <clears throat> Megloss is the story that feels like it belongs in season 17, really. 
there's less of the well there's no more humor especially in Megloss necessarily than there are in the other stories that's the one thing that's really gone but Megloss feels like a story that would have belonged in season 17 a bit possibly i mean it does ring with the uh, the signs that that chris brought in you know the dodecahedron mm. i i think i, I think John Flanagan and McCulloch, that initially the um they'd had a, a pen a pentagram, I think it was, uh the object, and it was Chris who came up with the idea of a dodecahedron. And it's one of those words, one of those scriptures that you just think, you know, it's got Chris written all over it. Yeah. I don't know, there's just there are lots of great elements in Megloss. Yeah, absolutely. And when I think of the season seventeen stories, I also see lots of great elements in those. And I see, in spite of the production problems, I think the stories knit together quite well. I think the trouble with Megloss is some of the ideas in there don't quite gel with some of the other ideas in there. It feels like a season 17 story that Christopher Bidmead was trying to make into a season 18 story and didn't quite take it all the way. So it kind of sits halfway between the two. Do you know what I mean by that? It doesn't it doesn't quite fit in season 18, but it doesn't quite fit in any other season either. It just feels like a Doctor Who story out of time. Mm. A little mm. bit like the twin dilemma, I think, in that that doesn't really fit in season 21 either. No. I think there are quite a few story ideas in the season, actually, that were almost unique. I, think, I mean, the, the, we'll come on to the leisure hive, but I mean, that I, I think is entirely unique in its, its look and style and Maybe less of some of the story content. Um, I think that that has something of season seventeen about it as well. But um, well, it does, and that's next mm. on our list. So let's talk about uh-huh. it now. Well, can, I, well, just, can I just quickly mm. ask Andrew something? Um, yeah. That story obviously was going to lead into your story. To what extent did you? Was it purely down to the script editor to make your story fit? as a jigsaw piece into that because obviously at the end of Megloss they get called back to Gallifrey and in the beginning yeah. of yours they're trying to get to Gallifrey so to what extent was that kind of ported to you as a writer? Yeah, That was given to me as a situation although it didn't really affect the story to be honest with you and I um, uh, I was, I, I received the scripts for Megloss which at the time was called The Last Soul for Thurin um, uh, but really, all all that told me really was that they were they were heading back to Gallifrey. Of course, they didn't because we we'd had the script meeting and um, they were never going to get there. They were always going to go through the CVE. Mm. Um, it just meant I had a couple of lines at the start of mine about having returned the Earthling and uh, now we're going to make a way to Gallifrey. But of course, they don't get there. Mm. Oh, see, now I know you're mm. to blame for the fact that we didn't <laughs> see them returning the Earthling at the end of Megloss. That's it. <laughs> well. Mm. Do you know what? Then Megloss, that's a story I can put on for fun. You know? Yes. There are some stories, yeah. I'll look at the shelf, if I think I want to put a Doctor Who on, I'll look at the shelf, and there'll be certain ones on there where I think, no, not in the mood for that. But I don't know if there's a mood where I wouldn't be right for putting Megloss on. I can just put it on and enjoy it. And I think, you know, I mean, full circle notwithstanding, I, I, I think all the other stories in season 18 are, you know, it's about fun. And some very original thinking, and um, you know, there, there isn't any anything across that season. I don't think is fun. I, you know, I I have got 
you know, you know, a, a biased view perhaps, uh, but um, I think it's a, you know, it's a fun season and Megos is fun. And I think, uh, you know, I, I think it'd be, and with my daughter's reaction to tonight, actually, I think it's one of those things particularly fun for kids. That one. Mm-hmm. My five-year-old watched mm. it with me last night. It's got a talking cactus in it. What more can you know, ask for? I know. The, Great stuff. A deflating cactus. And for, the, and for the second story in a row, we've got Tom Baker in some serious makeup. Yeah. yeah. You know. That's a little odd. And mm. that happens more often as we go through the series, I think, through the season, yeah. is mm-hmm. there seems to me to be... Well, we talked about this when you were on before. Full Circle and State of Decay both essentially have the same plot. In that a spaceship has crashed and a quite a few similarities, new... yeah. Yeah, but mm. then you've got Leisure Hive and Megloss, where both of them feature quite a lot of Tom Baker not being the Doctor, or not yeah. being the Doctor we know. And I think there are a couple of other instances as well that we may pick up on as we go through. Cool. I was going to say one more thing about Megloss, and it's gone right out of my head. So, oh, the one other thing I was going to say about Megloss is the whole science versus. Um, religion storyline yeah. is treated so simplistically it feels like something out of the black and white era the black and white era mm. do you know and that's i think what sits... it's very it's very polarized isn't it yeah yeah it's not mm. very subtle at all and that feels like a sort of 1960s doctor who story it feels a little bit like the space museum or something like that and yet you know the rest of the story there's some quite sophisticated stuff going on and then, of course, you've got um, oh, Grugger and oh, what are yeah, they called? I was going to bring them up. That's, Grugger and Brotherman. That's one of the more fun aspects. That's right. Yeah, and they both feel like characters out of season seventeen, whereas the sort of characters on Megloss feel like characters out of the black and white era, and yet the story feels like something out of the modern era. So this is what I think I mean when I say it feels yeah, like. Yeah, I see where of, you're coming from. It doesn't I feel quite... like they could have been in the ribos operation. Yeah, none of the elements quite sit right with all the other elements. I think this goes back to what Simon was saying as well when we started talking about Megalos. But nevertheless, it's great fun. Mm, oh, yeah. Mm, and yeah. anything... I, I, anything. It's, Absolutely. It's definitely not the worst story mm-hmm. of the season. Well, not the worst, but I wouldn't put it at the bottom of the list. And yet, as a collective, our listeners have. Thanks, listeners. <laughs> Um, it's also got Lala Ward in it, and I can watch anything with Lala Ward in it. Anyway, moving on. And poor old Kane uh, running out of batteries again. He's, oh, yeah, he's got the anatomy of a mobile. Yeah, sorry. I mean, well, that basically happens in the leisure hive as well, doesn't it? It does. Well, I think he's got the anatomy of a mobile phone. My phone, my phones always do that. You lose them for a bit, and eventually they lose capacity, don't they? It's weird, actually. When season 18 started, there had been these stories in the press that the producer wanted to get rid of the dog. Mm. And for the first two stories, and also in Full Circle, yeah, uh, he lo- is it in Full Circle he loses his head? Mm. Oh, he sure does. That's <laughs> right. So three stories in a row where K-9 gets sidelined due to one problem or another. It, 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 that's That's proper foreshadowing. Even Jar Jar Binks get, didn't get treated like that, did he? <laughs> he got you know, the great thing as well, I wasn't told to do it. I just did it. I just thought I wanted to know. Oh, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that shows what kind of a fan you were, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, guys, next up, Leisure Hive, as you were just saying, Andrew. Hmm. Do you know what? I think Leisure Hive, and it's not the only story this season that's vying for this, I think the Leisure Hive is one of the absolute best directed stories of the entire classic run of Doctor Who. Yeah, Hill. I, I, I rewatched it recently, and um, for the first time, I, I, I've, I've always liked it. I've always thought it had a particularly unique style. Always looked good. I, I rewatched it recently, uh, and I was, I, I was compelled by the whole thing. Uh, and you're right, the way, you know, the, the, the way it's produced is, yeah. it's brilliant. I, I mean, very time consuming, and love it, Vic, for the director had to be given an extra day in the studio, which, for which John, um, never invited him got back. Got carpeted. Mm. Never invited him back, but my word, it looks great. It really does look good. The Famasi, possibly notwithstanding, but um, I don't think they very, look very especially well. bad. No, no, I, I don't have a particular problem with them. Uh, I mean, I know Lovett Bickford has said it with hindsight that he thinks it should have been uh, produced by um, visual effects and not by the costume department. Um, but but uh, um, yeah, you know, June Hudson did a good job with them. Uh, she, she used a layered material that should have had a kind of a shimmering effect, but it didn't work under the studio lights. Um, ah. but they, but you know, they they look good enough, and uh, the the whole thing. I think it's a cracking story. They and, look uh, like a fairly classic Doctor Who monster, as do, of course, the Marshmen in Full Circle, and yeah. after mm. the Mandrels and the Creature from the Pit and Whisper It Do the Nymon. I think the Nymon, Lord Nymon. It was quite nice to see a Doctor Who monster that looked like a Doctor Who monster, if you know what I mean. Because I think yeah. Graham Williams kind of lost the ability. Uh, there was something in his production regime that kind of lost the ability to do the monsters. And it was nice to see an effort being made. And between this mm. and, well, especially when you got to Full Circle, Full Circle felt like proper Doctor Who. I think you could argue the Jaggeroff was a pretty decent yeah. Doctor Who monster. I think that it was, was the, probably uh, the exception to the rule, but yeah, yeah. But we talked about this before. Yeah. But the leisure. I tell you what, even the, even the Nymon. Have you listened to Seasons of Fear from Big Finish? Mm. You might if you if you don't rate the Nymon horns of Nymon. And actually, I I liked it a lot more. Uh, Recently, when, when the v, when, when the yeah. DVD well when the VHS came out actually from the, that first viewing. Good man, Andrew. Um, but listen to Seasons of Fear, and uh, horns of Nymon has a lot going for it. Mm. Actually. Which I, I wouldn't have thought on broadcast. I didn't like it on broadcast, but I, I, I rate it more now, and I highly recommend Seasons of Fear. Okay, there you go, listeners. Anyway. Seasons of Andrew. I I think it's Horns of Nymon. I think is a great story and a really poor production. Uh, yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. And I I think that that scene in Horns of Nymon, uh, where um the TARDIS console. Explodes yeah. and you hear the spring oh, yeah. and the car horn and everything. Else, I think is the nadir of. Do you know who uh, it is? Oh no, question. Do you know who directed that? Kenny McBain. Kenny, do you know what Kenny he, McBain? Do you know what he's responsible for? He's uh, he's the guy who brought Inspector Morse to television. Oh yeah. Now what? you mention it, I can see the influences. Mm. <laughs> or him and Ted Charles. Ted Charles was the executive producer, and Kenny McBain was the series producer of uh, mm. the first two series of Inspector Morse. That just beggars belief, doesn't it? But we're supposed to be talking about the Leisure Hive, guys. Yes. Yeah. Simon, 
Any mm. thoughts on the Leisure Hive? How long is it since you've seen it? Uh, it's not that long, but do you know what? Just to refresh my memory, I was going through the one of the rundowns in on Wikipedia of the story, and I still can't make sense of it. It's, it's really quite a complex story, isn't it? It's another one of those. It's it's a con. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, I think I think the problem with the Leisure Hive is that they overcomplicate it. The con with all these other story elements as well. David Fisher, well, he was the guy who was supposed to write A Gamble with Time, which then became City of Death under Douglas Adams. And there's something of the same sort of plot influence as going on in The Leisure Hive. And again, it's like whenever David Fisher tries to write this story, somebody comes along and buggers it up for him. Because along comes Christopher Bidmead and throws all this science stuff at it. And I'm not sure David Fisher copes very well with having to include all the science stuff. But da- da- well, David and Chris, you know, looking at the DVD uh, documentaries, mm. uh, David and Chris disagree, but David Fisher reckons he's the one who introduced uh, the tachyons and tachyonics into it. Mm. Oh, really? Uh, and doesn't uh, well, and I mean, it, it does smack of Chris to me, but yeah. uh, that sort of thing. But David Fisher certainly doesn't distance himself from it, and he doesn't talk about. You know, all this science being um, introduced into it, you know, uh, against his will, because he actually claims to be responsible for it. Wow. Um, but those elements mm. would seem to be the ones that disrupt the flow of the story, which would have worked. No, I'm not going to say it would have worked better without it, but it would have been a simpler, more straightforward story without it. That you could perhaps. I don't, I don't know. They're quite key to it because the whole thing of um, you know rejuvenation and the uh, the duplication of of Pangle, you know, at the uh, and, spoilers yeah. if you haven't watched it, but um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know tachyons and the baryon particles, is it as well, are all quite key to the plot. Mm. Without them, I think it'd be a different story. Mm. Maybe need a different mechanism. Do you know what? I will admit. Well, it's not much of an admission. When I first saw The Leisure Hive, the changes were too much, and I didn't think very much of it at all. But when It, it was a huge change, mm, though, wasn't mm, it? And that's the thing. In this day and age, when you know people, maybe they've come to the classic series just watching the DVDs on, on release, but sometimes you, 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 you miss the context. And the yeah. context with Leisure Hive was it was a huge step change, um, including things like the, the, the opening titles, the, the electronic music, which is, a, again, a big thing in yeah. season 18. The radiophonic workshop taking over from Dudley Simpson, uh, the Doctor's costume and the question marks and everything else. But, but just story-wise, production-wise, it, and Leisure Hive in particular was a huge, huge step change from what we'd seen in season 18 the year before. Mm. I was talking but to what? a friend of mine in America uh, last weekend, and he was saying the way he watched it on PBS, they went straight from Horns of Nyman straight into... Leisure Hive, and he just couldn't really get to grips with all the changes. He was like, well, what's happened to yeah. my program? Where's it gone? Mm. Everything has changed. Mm. And I think he found it quite hard to reconcile it. Visually, there's a huge change. I don't I don't think that should be underestimated, the mm. fact that there's de- mm. some really beautiful design in this series. I think uh, my, yes. my endearing... Or my sorry, not endearing. That's the wrong word. There you go. There's a slip. And my enduring. enduring memory of Leisure Hive is everything's very yellow and very yeah. beige. And as soon as as soon as the it's that same old thing. As soon as somebody measures the Leisure Hive, mentions Leisure Hive, I think of the Target cover, mm-hmm. which again was really yellow and beige, and um, yellow and green actually, wasn't it? Oh, what I with think. the Argolins and the yeah, yeah. And don't the Argolins look good? 
I, th- I think, you know, the makeup job on them, together with uh, June Hudson's, I mean, f- fairly simple, but, but, but great costume designs. Oh, see, uh, I'm really going to have to disagree with yeah, you there. I'm oh, have to no, agree with no, as well. Yeah, no, no, I really don't like the look of them at all. You've got some great actors in there, like Lawrence Payne, David Haig. Yeah, and yeah, And I can't yeah. take it seriously Corey. when they're wearing all that. I don't know, just, it's my problem, I think, rather than... No, I think, it's a, I think it's a very striking look. Shall I tell you what I really like about the Leisure Home? <clears throat> and it Is it when the balls drop off? No, the <laughs> thing I really like about the Leisure <laughs> oh, Home... Is the two-minute pan across the beach? Oh at the my start. god! Yeah, everybody, everybody takes a Mickey out of that. Yeah. I think, but when you are coming back, and it's a new series, and you have got a new production team behind mm-hmm. it, and you want to signal the fact that it's changed, I think that's a really sort of genius in its subtlety way of signalling the change. Two minutes of absolutely nothing, which is like an intermission at the cinema, if you will. It's almost like, okay, here's two minutes on a beach, and now we're back with something different. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? When I, when of... I look at it, I think I think it's one beach tent too many. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. One beach tent too many. Well, you've got that cool but, transition, um, haven't you? That sort of Quantel effect that zooms in, and that's yeah. Great. Oh, yeah, the Quantel machine yeah, is yeah. new as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, everything. Yeah, I think I agree with Andrew on that. It's a bit, bit much. Uh, and in an episode that's short anyway. Mm, yeah, it's <laughs> two minutes. Yeah. I think Chris says in the commentary in the DVD. You know what's telling you about the story. Mm. So I think it's a, it finishes with a lovely shot of the doctor in the deck chair on the beach. Yes. You know, I, I, I do love that shot. Somebody um, obviously. Mm. Okay, he puts the doctor on a beach and decides to do this really long, slow pan all across the beach. But it's not till they get in the editing room that somebody decides at which point during that pan the shot starts. <laughs> and somebody in the editing room decided, oh, let's just use the whole thing. Otherwise, the episode's only 16 <clears> minutes <throat> long. So, you know, that's the reason for that. JR wasn't complaining because he got to see more of Lala Ward in her Edwardian swimming gear. Well, not really, because she wasn't in the beach house. Uh, have you not seen the director's cut? Oh, where she's walking along with the camera? Yeah. Yeah, that would have been nice. Mm. I'll tell you another, not a problem, but another thing about this episode that I noticed at the time, and this is to do with the changes, on, well, this is, John Nathan Turner comes in and he wants to make Doctor Who look spick and span because in season 17, obviously by the end of season 17, things were looking far from spick and span. But I think by making these lovely spick and span sets that are supposed to look opulent i think that that has the unfortunate effect of highlighting how small the sets are and how cheaply made they have to be in order to get them done on doctor who's budget i know it's a sign of the times of how it was made but they're so brightly lit and it doesn't help it just looks really flat that's what i yeah that's the point Mm -hmm. if you light if you light it badly or less well then you can perhaps get away with that a bit more. But because it's gone for this sort of grand opulent look, mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's it's not really their fault. It's not really a problem, but I couldn't help notice it at the time. Which is, fortunately, something that doesn't dog the rest of the season. I think maybe that they learned a lesson from that, perhaps. And when you get to things like Warrior's Gate and Keeper of Trakan, State of Decay in full circle as well. Mm-hmm. Everything looks so much better 
because whatever the problem with Legerive was, you know, if indeed they learned from Legerive, but they appear to have. I think where we benefit, I mean, full circle and um, state of decay, we're, we're benefiting. We had more, we had more location film. Yeah, I was just thinking because Leisure High basically you have the scene on the beach, and then it's all studio, mm-hmm. and then Megalos is all studio again. Um, uh, so then with full circle again, episode one in particular, quite a bit of location filming to to shake things up. It's always, I think, makes things just look a little bit better. And the uh, set design of the <clears throat> inside of the Starliner. Mm. That's the best spaceship set we've seen in Doctor Who for many years. Quite minimalistic, but yeah, I thought it did a really, really good job on it. It really works. Um, so we have yeah, the... Leisure, Leisure Hive, there's, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention. One was a, there's an incredible shot, I think, I think I've seen episode two or three, where there's a shot we start outside the Leisure Hive and the camera moves in on, on the model. Then it fades to out looking through a window into the room where Hard and, and um, Mina are. Yeah. And then appears to come through the window. It doesn't. What I think they've done is they put a tint on the shot to make it look as if you're outside the window. And then as you move in, the sound oh, yeah. is, and you've got the wind blowing around you. Then you move in and you're in the room. It looks like you come through the window. This is a fantastic shot. The other thing that really shot Oh, before me, you be, go on to the other mm, thing, though. Yeah. You know where they <clears> nicked <throat> that shot from? Go on. Citizen Kane. All right. <clears throat> Orson Welles does a very famous <clears throat> shot in Citizen Kane. where Next he, from the best. Yeah, exactly. Where he starts <laughs> on the outside of a model and pans through the set, through a window, mm. into a set. So he started on a model, right. and in a single shot, he goes through a window and into a set. Cool. There you go. Anyway, your other thing, sorry. The other thing, the other thing again, a, a, a bit of it just completely gripped me when I was re-watching it, is... The scenes leading up to Stimson's death. So Stimson is the 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 guy who's uh, from Earth who's working with Harden, convinces him to fake the the, uh, the time experiment, hmm. um, and then he goes into uh, Brock's room or Clout's room, opens up the uh, cupboard, finds the skin Clout skin suit hanging there, and he leaves, goes in the, the the generator room, and he's attacked. That whole thing, all that that whole sequence. It's fantastic. Not a word. So well shot. The close-up on the dead, empty eyes of the skin suit. I can't remember the name of the actor, but the actor playing Stimson just reacts it so well. The green lighting in the room and everything. It's just... Uh, I think I was holding my breath throughout the whole thing when I re-watched it recently. It's genuinely scary. I, I, again, uh, I felt tense watching that in a way I haven't done watching some Doctor Who for quite a while. Oh. David Allister. Mm. I've just looked him up. I've All still right. got my book in front of me. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh. there you go. Um, yeah, good job. <clears throat> the guy, the the guy, the story that came. Oh, this is this is where it gets interesting. Those two, I mean, this is just a fault of how the voting works. But those two were way far behind, and the next five stories between first and fifth place <clears throat> on the poll all came in with very little variation in the votes and seriously any of those five stories could have ended up anywhere to be honest but the story that did come in fifth all of which is by way of a preamble andrew to (laughs) i thought you were buttering me up (laughs) to let you know that the story that came in fifth was state of decay all right he did there that surprises me well you know what i think i think the the other four stories uh all have particular reasons why people may have voted them first, but State of Decay is one of those sort of perennial second-choice stories. Do you know what I mean? Mm. 
All the other four stories have particular aspects that make them sit in people's memories perhaps a bit more. And State of Decay is one of those ones that everybody likes, but nobody likes as much as they like something else. I don't know. I'd I'd, I'd always got the impression it was people's favourite of the East Space trilogy. Oh, really? But again, with these, they're always snapshots when you see these. uh, But I think over you know over the years, I've always thought people regarded that as a the favourite of the East Space trilogy. Oh no, my impression is completely the opposite. I would say people like a certain kind of people like Warriors Gate because I love Warriors. Yeah, because of Mm. what it is. But yeah. the people who don't, the people who aren't <clears throat> that certain kind of person, in my experience, all love Full Circle. Mm. I would have, yeah. So, so I think State of Decay just kind of sits slightly on the outside of everything, especially in terms of this season as well. Because of course, I don't know whether you know any whether this is true or not. But there's that story that went around for a long time that Peter Moffat chucked out Christopher Bidmead's script rewrites on Terence Dix's script and went with the original. Uh, yeah, I've heard that as well, but I've heard... I, d- I don't think it was... Um, I, I don't think it's qu- quite as drastic as... No, because there's a lot my of... understanding. There's a mm. lot of stuff in State of Decay that still feels to me like Christopher Bidmead. Yeah. So... Yeah. So... It, <clears throat> they may have chucked some stuff out, but I certainly don't think they chucked everything out. But State of Decay, Mark... What, yes. Mark, what do you think of State of Decay? I quite like it. There's some memorable bits in there. Um, this was, if I'm right in remembering, this is one that Terence Dix had written for an earlier season, and then there was a problem because the BBC had a product, uh, a production of Dracula, and they didn't want it to look like it was mm. kind of yeah, we lose your yeah, sort mm. of. It was uh, yeah, he had to. Re- that's right, he had to replace it with uh, Horror Fang Rock. And we is... know how you hate <laughs> Horror Fang Rock, Mark. I love that story. How dare you! <laughs> <laughs> I love horror of Hang Rock. Uh, but yeah, so I like the. Uh, if you're talking in terms of where I voted, I can't remember how I voted on this one now, but um, I think it's one of my better stories from the season. Um, I really like the the three who rule. They're quite memorable. The whole sort of makeup thing and the beating the heart f- in the bottom of the castle, although. Perhaps the end result, when it sort of breaks through, isn't quite as impressive. Um, is pretty cool. Um, I think. Go on, sorry. No, go on. I was going to say, I think the only problem with State of Decay, I think it's got a great first episode mm-hmm. and a great last episode. I think the only problem with it, because I mean, the acting in it is absolutely amazing, and the production design is just beautiful, mm. and Peter Moffat. Mm directing for the first time, I think, on Doctor Who, because we all know that Peter Moffat didn't keep up with the inspiration throughout his entire Doctor Who career. But this seems a perfect fit for him. But Terence Dix seems to have forgotten to include any story in his second and third episodes. So it kind of gets to the end of the first episode and then just kind of flails around a bit for for two episodes before coming together at the end. Anybody agree with that, or am I wrong? Hmm. Okay, nobody's got a thought on that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, every time I watch... My memory's it, weak on this yeah, one. I, I, oh, really? I decide, yeah. Hmm. Whenever I watch State of Decay, I always really enjoy the start, really enjoy the end, and find myself kind of flagging a bit in the middle. I don't know why. It's, 
it just doesn't seem to have the incident that you mm. usually associate with Terence Dick. Doesn't Adric get sidelined for a while, having to work in a kitchen or something? Or seem to remember. Yeah, but that works really well because Andrew and Terence both write Adric similarly to one another, mm-hmm. and then after that, it seems to get forgotten. But the character who came, who comes in, Adric, you know, the, the inverted quotes expression that everybody uses is the artful dodger in space. Mm. I mean, that's a shorthand to understanding a character, especially when you've got to explain to writers what they need to do with a character yeah. if you're placing that character in a script. But that's right, it works. Yeah, Ad, Adric does start off as this character who can be influenced by he the kind villains. of ends up becoming generic boy genius after a while, though, doesn't he? Yeah, and then by the time you get to things like the visitation and Earthshock, he just seems to be argumentative for the sake of it. Mm. Mm. But in full circle and state of decay, he's a great character. Andrew, how much talk was there before you brought Adric in about exactly how he'd be? Because I think State of Decay was written before you wrote. Full circle, or I'm yeah, it was. It, yeah, in, in fact, yeah, State of Decay was Matthew's uh, first story. Mm. It was it was uh, uh, filmed before Full Circle. Um, I had the script for that at some point. Um, I mean, the first script meeting I had with uh, Chris and John when they commissioned me, commissioned me initially to write a script for the first episode of Full Circle and see how it went. Um, uh, you know, we went through the the one page character outline of this new character, and then fitted him into you know the storyline I'd already sent into the office. Um, Was that difficult? Uh, not particularly. He, he he was you know initially he was also going to be another you know another member of the uh, the society on the Starliner. Um. And I already knew he had to have a brother who died trying to save the doctor. That that was in the the sheet. So his do- his brother became the leader of the, the gang of outlaws. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I I didn't really. I think that that thing of him. I think it was a description in the paper of him being like a delinquent or a member of a street gang. Yeah, something like that. And that's probably where the outlaws came from. But they they were never really a street gang, if you like. No. And he was never really that delinquent character that was suggested. I think by the. Uh, uh, by that that A4 sheet of paper that that uh, that Chris had written up. And let's um, be honest, mm. Matthew Waterhouse. I don't think he'd have been terribly convincing as a delinquent, really. Ooh, I don't know. No, he's too nice. Far too nice to get away with. Playing. I think we're st- we're probably still in the age of the uh, you know you know RP. Yeah. Um, yeah. Almost whatever character you were playing. But let's back to State of Decay. It is beautiful to look at. Simon, thoughts on State of Decay? State of Decay, again, coming back to the Target novel. Um, State of Decay I only watched last year for the first time in its entirety. I'd seen bits of it when it was on television. Um, it's got one of the what I think is one of the silliest cliffhangers in it, where they're attacked by bats. Oh. Is, it's, just, it's just, it doesn't work. But... Um, but other than that, as you say, it is beautifully, and it's certainly my favourite vampire story of the whole of Doctor Who. But then I'm, I'm <laughs> not think, a big fan think, of vampire stories. But I'd, I'd... yeah, I think I think that cliffhanger with the bats. I think it was an issue with that, and on location, it was decided by someone that the Doctor had blue blood. Oh right. Oh yeah. Uh, and some scenes were filmed with, um, and in fact, I think you can make it out on Tom's hand in one 
scene. But it had to be edited down. So I think John John didn't like that, and they had to cut out some bits that might have made it clearer. Mm. Not sure. It I worked mean, for me. I remember when I first watched that episode, and I was well excited to see what happened after that. I thought that first episode of State of Decay was great. Yeah, and yeah. job done. Yeah, mm. and we'll get we'll have exactly the same thing when the next story we talk about in a moment. I Not love that the um, dropping any hints there. I love the great vampires. <laughs> it, it's true what you say that of the three e space uh, stories, it's the only one which kind of well, quite literally, as what they did was just slot it in there. It, it mm. could have happened in the normal universe quite easily, couldn't it? And the only thing which kind of makes sense of the e space things is the great vampires, isn't it? The fact that they disappeared from our universe and that's where they went. So that kind of links in with that. That's not really a major plot point, though. I do it's have not. that. Pro- I think the space thing. I know they made it a trilogy in order to make it seem like an important part of this eighteenth um, season, and it does feel like a significant thing that happens in the middle of this season. And I suppose if you're getting rid of Romano, he's not just a well-loved character, but also an equal for the Doctor, not just in terms of intelligence and personality, but in terms of the fact that she's a member of his species. And the first one who's travelled with him since Susan. So it would take something pretty big to get rid of Romana. So you kind of need to make it significant. So you give it three stories to tell the East Space story. And that gives it the significance. But my problem with that is this. Only Warrior's Gate actually tells the East Space story. The other two stories, Full Circle and State of Decay, just take place in East Space. Mm. And they don't really seem to have they're not necessary do you know andrew what are your thoughts on that because you when you wrote or when you first um Hmm. submitted the planet that slept yeah which is a much better title in full circle by the way i'd have to agree (laughs) (laughs) when you first submitted that there was no thought of east space then how late was east space introduced to the story and did you have to make much of a sacrifice to get it in? And and also, I suppose, did you feel that somehow that was an imposition on you that you could have lived with better without, perhaps? I didn't feel any imposition at all. I was sitting in the studios at Shepherd's Bush Green thinking, bloody hell, they're asking me to write a script. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, I'd, I'd, I, you know, I'd written a storyline, and um, uh, it changed to the uh, extent that. Um, are you still with me? Yeah, 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 we're here. Oh, yeah, sorry, it went very quiet. Thought and dropped out. I'd, I'd written a storyline um, uh, that was about uh, that in which the Starliner had just crashed on this planet, mm. um, and then we had this script meeting at Shepherd's Bush, myself and Chris and John, and we went through. The storyline, how we're going to fit Adric in, and all that sort of thing, and um, uh, uh, and one of the things they decided then was it was going to be this generational thing. So the story changed quite a bit, and going through the CVE and being in E space was, was there right from the start. So kind of redoing the storyline uh, that just became part of it. You're right. I mean, it, again, that, that story could have could, could have been almost anywhere. I think it, it added a nice little mystery to it. Um, a very nice mystery. How come we've landed somewhere where we see Gallifrey on the scanner, but we step outside, uh, and it's another planet? I altogether. love yeah. that. Yeah, I yeah, that uh, was really nice. Yeah, you know, and it and that pays off in episode four. Um, 
but uh, one thing I'll say again for State of Decay, you got to remember. I mean, having having the second episode in the, tr- uh, the second part of a trilogy can be a bit of a thankless task. Uh, I, I think it pulls off the job very well. Mm. Um, uh, I think the trilogy holds up really well. But but yeah, getting getting back to your question, no, it wasn't really an imposition. Um, I was got my head around charged vacuum embodiments uh, and all that sort of thing. It's uh, um, yeah, it just became the way into the story and and produced a nice little uh, cliffhanger at the end of it. And uh, you know, I felt Steve Stephen Chapansky does. Uh, I don't know, he's been on this podcast, hasn't he? Yeah, uh, from Radio he's... Free Scarrow. He said he, so he remembers that as something that showed him that you know the, the series could be a little different, uh, and got him hooked. The, the that ending that. You know, the story didn't just end with the TARDIS, uh, you know, the Doctor and Romana came in getting back in the TARDIS and flying off to another adventure, but they were actually trapped somewhere. Um, it's quite an innovation at the time. I don't think anything like that had been done before. You're right. I mean, the new, I suppose the closest thing was the key to time, but that mm. was very ostentatious. Whereas mm. this was kind of just... I mean, obviously, back in those days before the internet, these days with the internet and spoilers, we'd all know. But back then, mm. it just seemed to arrive with very little fanfare. And you're right, the mystery that was set up. I suppose, actually, watching it the first time, I I probably enjoyed the mystery, but didn't like the fact that it wasn't resolved straight away. <laughs> because we are, of teased. course... <laughs> you were teased. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We are, of course, on full circle now. That's the story that came fourth. Hey. <clears throat> but it's only a point behind the story that came third... And it's only a point behind. The... No, no, that's right. And it's only a point behind the story that came second, because actually those three stories all very nearly tied. Mm. So basically, I think what that shows, and I think this is quite pertinent as well. Actually, I think Leisure Hive is seen as a bit lackluster when compared to the better stories of season eighteen, and I think Megalos feels like an odd one out, and obviously that came last by some distance. But those top five stories in season 18 pretty much shared almost exactly the same voting with almost all of them being voted top quite a significant number of times on the polls that we got sent in. Apart from State of Decay, which, like I say, was everybody's second choice almost. But there were after the first two stories, which feel like John Nathan Turner and Christopher Bidmead, not quite sure what they're doing, finding their feet, you get to Full Circle, and from Full Circle to Legopolis, Season 18 is extremely sure-footed. Mm. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to talk less tonight, guys. It's quite a vision, though, isn't it? I mean, I think I think whatever John Nathan Turner's plans were to do with the series worked to an extent. I mean, they did completely rebrand it. As I said before about the vis- the visual side of it, it did look like a completely fresh program, um, almost on every level. There wasn't a huge amount left of the you know of, of how it looked originally. I mean, the the whole Tom Baker costume, and I, I I think it's far more. I don't know what the word is. It's a far more subtle effect than some people might might think. I don't think, as I said before, I don't think you can underestimate how the feel of the program had changed due to how it looked. Um, Speaking of how things looked, though, the one problem with Full Circle... Are you listening, Andrew? I'm listening. <laughs> the one problem with Full Circle, in visual terms, is the damn spiders. What were you thinking? 
Well, I think... I, I, well, I'll tell you what. He didn't make the, him. Uh, the, the, there was initially, there was initially a, a much, there were going to be much larger spiders, but at the first script conference, there was an episode of Blake 7 had gone out called The Harvest of Kairos. Yes. Uh, I think it had gone out the night before or something like that, that we, that I met up in February 1980 with John and Chris. And John was adamant that we weren't going to try and have anything like the thing that they'd had on that episode. Oh. It was just too large and un- unwieldy. I think not, but, but plenty of people have told me they were really scared by that and terrified by the cliffhanger. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you can see the strings that pull them along. Um, and I was, John Brace, uh, visual effects designer actually gave me one of them and it was pinned to my wall in my office at home actually for a while until the latex disintegrated. Oh. Um, but, um, they were clever designs and, and the, uh, the motorized ones, very clever, very, I think actually it was my age with the spiders. <laughs> I was, because I'm old enough to remember Planet of the Spiders. There were, there were complaints about them in uh, Houses of Parliament. What, the spiders in full circle? Yeah, yeah, it's been really? too scary. Yeah. Wow. Mm. They did. Uh, Job done. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, well, it was definitely my age mm. then. I, you can never go really go wrong with spiders, though. No. Yeah. Mm. Andrew, and, you were saying earlier, sorry to jump in, JR. You're saying earlier you were sat in this sort of production meeting thinking, oh my God, they want me to write and yeah. you had to come up with this script. How did it feel when you had the likes of George Baker performing your script on TV? That must have been amazing. It was. Uh, George Baker and Richard Willis mm. were the two. Again, when I, and I, I don't think I knew the casting until I turned up at the uh, the read-through for the script at, at Acton. Um, uh, uh, jo- yeah, George Baker, who'd been in so many programs before, mm. especially Please Sir uh, and Bowler, I knew him from and, um, and Richard Willis well. had been in My Claudius mm-hmm. and uh, Richard Willis had uh, been in a, a fantastic children's series on ITV called uh, The Feather Serpent mm-hmm. with Diane Keane and Patrick Troughton mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I knew very well from that and um, oh, I was delighted with the cast uh, James... and then Alan, Ro- Alan Rowe yeah. had been in Doctor Who before mm-hmm. James Breen. Yeah. Again, he'd been in Doctor Who before, but I didn't know that at the time. It is a wonderful mm-hmm. cast. The only uh, criticism I'd have of Full Circle, it's not really a criticism. I think I'd have liked to. No, have, no, go on. I think I'd have liked to have seen your original script slightly more than the one you ended up with. Uh, there are some changes. There are quite a few changes. In fact, episode four is, is largely Chris. Um, you know, I'd done, I talk about this on the commentary, actually, that I'd. Uh, I, I initially submitted a, an episode for, in, in fact, it was all about the Starliner taking off. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and the Outlaws playing a large part in that. That was the whole driver for the fourth episode. Um, I've got no complaints. Uh, you know, uh, Chris is one of the most impressive people I've ever met. I, I owe him a great deal, and John as well. And I think they were a phenomenal team that season. They really, really were. And they, they did a phenomenal amount of good. Uh, to the series in that year. Mm. Can I just ask? Oh, gone quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Simon was about Discuss. to say something. Um, yeah, yeah, I am. I am. Yeah. Um, it's just occurred to me, Andrew. Of course, you you wrote the novelisation for Full Circle as well. Yes. Uh, and this is probably the subject for another podcast if we can manage to drag you back on. But um, where you've made these changes to the story, which, which necessi- you know weren't necessarily decisions you would have made hmm. do you get that op- opportunity when you write the novelization to kind of do it more how you wanted it 
or are you kind of do they sort of say we want it as close to what was on screen as possible no, no, no one said that, but that's what I wanted to do. And in fact, kind of unusually, I mean, I, I got a, a, a video recorders weren't common in 1980. I, I got my first video recorder to record season 18. Um, uh, and, uh, I actually used that when I was writing the book, particularly early in the earlier chapters as well to try, because something about the target novels, I would get a little bit annoyed actually if they strayed too far from what was on screen. Mm. <laughs> uh, and I actually just, I had the, the video on hand just to watch scenes as I wrote them. And so I added things like little business that the actors would do. For instance, Tom picking up the book and flicking through it in Romana's room. I added that into the book because it was on screen. Mm. Having said that, I did add extra things. I added Nefrid actually viewing the system files. Harry scenes of Outlaws being chased and dragged under the marsh when the mist first arrives and there's a scene at the end of the marshmen actually returning to the marsh and communicating telepathically with each other. Things like that. But um no I d I didn't want it I didn't want it to be something that was in any way radically different from what had been on screen because I don't think you know, the job of the target novel, particularly then, because I mean we didn't have they weren't coming out mm. as VHS videos at the time. That was the record. You know, after you'd seen the programme, your only way to re-experience it, it was the novel. Mm. Yeah. So it was never... What I did want to do... Yeah, what I did want to do with the book as well was just flesh it out a little bit. Yeah. So there's backstory for Adric that his parents died in a forest fire and that sort of thing, which I um, used in my first Big Finish audio, Invasion of Eastspace. Um, uh, you know, there were things like that. And I, I, I want a little more detail. Some of the novels had become a little sparse in the detail. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I was really pleased to do the novel, and I was really pleased with it at the end as well. It's yeah. such a huge part of us as fans, part of our growing up. You know, as you say, we just didn't. Oh, for me too. We had no tapes or any recordings, and I, I relied on them completely. Nope. Doctor Who lived in the books, as far as I was concerned, when I was a child. Yeah, but the, the books coming out, you look, you know, you look forward to the the novels being released because they were they were your only way. Of revisiting these shows at the time. Yeah. Do you mention this I was to actually, your kids? I was originally. Andrew. So I was originally. Sorry. Do you mention this to your kids that that was the only way that you could watch these things back? Are they stunned? Yeah. That you don't have catch-up TV when we were kids. Yeah, but kids today they don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, Dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had, it, you had it tough. You had it. Yeah, we had a really tough childhood. We couldn't rewatch Doctor Who. <laughs> My mum was in the war and the blitz. Yeah, but mum, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't really watch Doctor Who. But um, you know, it's all relative, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, the story that came third mm. is well. Do you want me to do this alphabetically, or reverse alphabetically, or chronologically, or reverse chronologically? Two or tell us. St- yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, one. two stories tied. <laughs> So, okay, the story that came first of the two that tied was Warrior's Gate. Ah. Hooray! As soon as we're on East Space Trilogy. Yeah. Warrior's Gate. That was just insane, wasn't it? Who came up with that idea? (laughs) It was bonkers. Who wrote that script and who set Paul Joyce behind the camera to film it? That was just insane. It's great though, isn't it? Isn't isn't it such a good story? Fantastic story, so imaginative. Written by Stephen Gallagher. Mm. Brulligan on Twitter, I think. Brulligan, is it? Oh, is he on, on Twitter? Twitter? I I so. Yeah, all, like all blimey, if you're not following him, follow him. He's very good. Um, you're our uh, Twitter guru, Andrew. Oh, I, and I love his stuff. You know, Chimera that he did. Uh, oh, yeah, TV that was great. And, um, 
the novel Valley of Lights. I think he did that not long after this, which was uh, an excellent sci-fi story, um, sci-fi slash horror story. Uh, but again, such an original, original story. I mean, I struggled maybe to you know put it on screen uh, with the whiteouts and using 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 actually the the walls of the studio yeah. as part of the set, which I think they came in and got some trouble with the lighting. Uh, engineers uh, at, at the time for doing that. I think they also uh, got in trouble during some of the shots inside the spaceship where Romana is on the couch mm-hmm. and there's a shot looking up and you see the studio lights above which obviously mm. Paul Joyce is trying to convince you as part of the spaceship set because it does, that shot looking up into the lights does give the spaceship this sense of massive depth Scale, and being yeah. a lot bigger than you it can does. imagine. It- it didn't take me out of the story at the time. No, so, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. But again, mm. that was against the rules, so they shouldn't have done it. And and Full Circle's milk crates didn't take you out of the story, did they? Because the, the great book, I don't know if you know, the great book room in Full Circle, yes. where, where they've got all those cards slotted yeah. in, their milk crates turned on the sides. You you know, you, you improvise and you do what yeah. you can. And those shots looking up, they just look good, you know? Oh. And the, the studio lights don't sit you out of it. Oh, do you know? Any more than the milk crates did. There's one thing that really took me out of a story that is of that ilk. And that was the handset that, uh, oh, what's she called? Crowd trimming, timming uses in, um, Caves of Androzani to um, operate the lift and oh, the remote things control like for the TV. Yeah, we had yeah. that telly. We <laughs> had that remote control. <laughs> and, and I've never liked that story because of that. <laughs> Warrior's Gate. Paul Joyce, you're mm. right. You've got to bring this astonishing, really kind of odd thing to the telly and use all these tricks that... I'd never seen used on television before. And I suppose they used one or two of them maybe in the mind robber. But, you know, for most people watching Warrior's Gate, they would have been looking at the screen. And if they, you know, it's the kind of thing, if you tune to it from another channel, as you were just flicking through the channels, you'd think, what the hell am I watching? But if you were watching it from the start, you'd be absolutely wrapped up in the story. So actually, there's two things going on there. A really strong story and a really strong visual that both yeah. knit together really nicely and come up with this end result that is something just a little bit special. Yeah. I think with a director as well, again, a little bit like Love at Bickford being a little bit of an old yeah. tour um, and really trying to do something special, poss- possibly a little too indulgent for the time that they had in the studio. Again, opening, again, I think it's the opening shot, a very long panning shot through the spaceship. I think it fades between shots, so it's not a continuous shot. But again, I what you might call indulgent, but, yeah. you know, atmospheric journey through the through the ship. Yeah. Um, uh, and do you know what? Yeah. That is the thing. After Star Wars came out, there's always been stories about, you know, Star Wars has come out, it's changed the game, Doctor Who can't keep up, it's, mm. you know, it's on a hiding to nothing. But you watch something like Warrior's Gate, and okay, it doesn't have the yes. outer space. Yes, I, I think, and we were, we were, yeah. But it, but with shots like that, with stuff like that, and the shooting up into the gallery lights and all those kinds of things, okay, it's not sort of in the Star Wars ilk in terms of the story, but it's not a million miles away from Alien either, and it does no. look a lot more expensive than it actually is. Yes, yeah, yeah. 
I think he's... the uh, the Guantanamo Bay um, overalls yeah. look a bit out of place these days. That's uh, I don't know. I think that's got a bit of the uh, the alien about it. That sort of it, yeah, it does. Yeah, the work, workman like again, mm. people who are doing the jobs and the characters again. I can't forget the names, but the, the two characters who are mm-hmm. tossing the coin. Yeah. yeah, It's very human. It's great dialogue. It's great, you know, believable characters that just add verisimilitude to the story. Uh, a very fantastical story, you know. Yeah. I think the two images that sort of stuck with me as a kid from season eighteen were the whole Tharrell thing where they were being tortured, mm. which is pretty full on. What? How old will I have been then? Yeah, sort of seven years old. Yeah, um, and the Marshmen coming up out of the water. That's the well, the Marsh mm. child being tortured as mm. well. Yeah, that had to. Yeah, I had to play that down. I went a little too far <laughs> in one draft of that. So. No, seriously, seriously, I thought they'll, they'll re- rule that back in. But um, and how good are the Gundam Warrior robots? Oh, yeah. oh they're gorgeous. You know, they they look amazing, don't they? Mm, mm, they do. And that is a fantastic. Um, like, you know, when the doctors attack by them, it's a fantastic cliff thing. He suddenly finds himself back in the hall again with the, the axe hitting the table. It's mm. it's it's telly that makes you it's telly that makes you notice. Do you know what? Yeah. There's so much telly, and this is not a criticism because this is what telly has to be. Because a lot of people just put telly on in the background, keep half an eye on it, and they're expected to keep up with the stories. So mm. you tend to make telly that. You can watch on two levels. If you mm-hmm. want to sit and give it your concentration, it should be fulfilling. But if you want to sit and not necessarily give it too much concentration, you should be able to follow it. And most telly, to be fair, does that. Warrior's Gate. In fact, all those five stories, that run from Full Circle to Logopolis, they're telly that makes you sit up and take notice of what's happening. It's it not the... me, looking it's... back now, of... It's... as... It did... Sorry, it's not the kind of telly you can put on in the background and leave on in the background. Absolutely you stop not. your conversations <laughs> and you start watching the telly. Now you can speak, Mark. And again, I'm, well, I, I'll just say, I'm, you know, I'm not objective about this, but I would include Laser Hive and Megalos in that as well. But there you go. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I said for some reason I always feel that Warriors Gate has the same sort of feel as Sapphire and Steel. Is I was that... just going to say that. I was just mm. going to say that. Mm. That's all PJ Hammond's surreal mm. stuff going on, yeah. It's not, you know, it's not incredibly complicated and it's not WTF telly by any stretch of the imagination. It makes sense. And all you've got to do, really, to be sold on Warrior's Gate is say, well, hang on, this is a, this is a time travel series. So stuff like this should be part of the bread and butter of the programme. It shouldn't feel weird. But because the te- the the program does it so infrequently, it does feel weird and different. And actually, Warriors Gate—I mean, it's a million miles away in terms of tone and in terms of the actual story. But in terms of things that happen and the way you have to use your brain to keep up with what's happening, it's not a million miles away from what Stephen Moffat does these days. To be frank, no. I, was, yeah. I was just thinking about the mind robber. You know, it's if if you can accept the mind robber, you can accept Warriors Gate. Warriors Gate is complete. He's almost... Well, it's halfway in between the mind robber and the girl who waited. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It looks surreal, but it's it's a, a powerful, believable story again about slavery, torture. Yeah, some pretty heavy um, themes in there, really. Oh, yeah. Oh. And people fail. You know, the Tharrells failing as well. You know, being being the being slave masters themselves. Mm. And yeah, having it all turned around for them. It came and a good ending. Came yeah. full circle, you might say, Andrew. 
Yeah, I've not heard that before. <laughs> wow. It's like Lee's here with us. Yeah, but but here's the theme that's going mm. through those three stories. <coughs> and a little bit further as well, because this theme is also in the Keeper of Dragon. Is this theme of Full Circle, which is kind of a shame that they actually impose that title on you, Andrew, because it kind of makes it obvious in your story where it's less obvious in the others. But they've all got mm. the same thing coming on where it's about the evolution of a society, essentially. All and entropy and things yeah, breaking down yeah. over time, which is heading towards Logopolis. Exactly. Mm. And, yeah, it's the one series in the classic series entire run, and I include the key to time and trial of a time lord in this, it's probably the one series where you do have a developing theme across all the stories that comes mm. to a head in the last story in such a way that you can now retrospectively look at that last story as a season finale because he's deliberately plotted the rest of the series. I mean, whether some of it was by accident or whether all of it was by design is all there and it's all going somewhere and it all gets to it in Logopolis. That's why I think it's a real shame that Chris didn't do at least one more series. Um, why did he go? Yeah. Do you know? Well, well, he said in interviews that... Um, oh, sorry, have you gone? Uh, oh, no. Well, oh. No, no, I'm tr- no, I'm just trying no, I'm just trying to think and try and get the... I mean, I haven't... Uh, I mean, we... We might be caught time about last year. I haven't, I haven't discussed this with him, but you know what he said. I'm just trying to recall exactly what he said in interviews. Basically, asked for a raise, didn't didn't get one, and was thinking of moving on anyway. And it was an awful lot of work. It was a lot of hard work um, uh, that year on the series. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So moved on. He had more. But thankfully, leaving us with Logopolis and Castrovalva and Frontios. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Logopolis and Castrovalva, Frontios. We can. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was also going to say, yeah, I'd probably have known that if I'd have read the, any of the interviews in question, but I refuse to read interviews with Christopher <laughs> H. Bidmead. But obviously I'm only kidding about that too. Of course I read interviews with Christopher H. Bidmead. Well, of course, because he gave one of the best ever interviews in Doctor Who magazine a few years ago. Yeah. him so, very entertaining. Him and Clive Swift. If they'd both been in the same issue, people would have been burning <laughs> that magazine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you imagine that? <clears throat> um, look, let's march on because we're already... God, actually, we've got two more stories to do. We're not going to get to these emails and messages from Facebook. But we've got two more stories, one of which is The Keeper of Traken, which drew in second place mm. with Warrior's Gate. And again, I think it's lovely. Blimey. And I think it has Johnny Byrne, who kind of also had a second career as a poet as well as writing things like Space 1999. So he's sort of pitched halfway in between space opera and romantic poetry or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? And Mm. so is the Keeper of Traken. Whatever he did afterwards, the Keeper of Traken was almost the perfect pitch for him as a story. And I think he does a brilliant job of it. I think it's beautifully written. It's almost like a pseudo-Shakespearean play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and beautiful, and because of that, beautifully performed. Because if you have a script with nice, rich dialogue and nice, rounded characters like that, it's very easy to get good actors in and get them to do a great job. 
and sell the story even better. It's one of those nice things where everything sort of comes into a confluence together and creates a whole that is probably better than the sum of its parts, even though those parts were obviously good going in. But you know what I mean? I think the Keeper of Traken almost supersedes itself to become something a little bit special. It does. It, in the same way as Warriors Gate did. It does have a Shakespearean feel because it is a tragedy. It, um, uh, is it Cassia? Is that her name? Yeah. yeah Cassia. You think about Cassia and Tremas. You know, there's not, there's not many happy endings in it at all, is there? Well, of no, course, in the Shakespearean true. sense, the tragedy means something slightly different anyway. It becomes all, all a bit more tragic for Traken as well than Logopolis. But, um, I guess I'm going to destroy. So, uh, yeah, you were, but, so you were uh, in uh, meetings with the production team at that time. Did you know that the master was coming back? No, I didn't. Ah. No. So you were no. just as surprised as uh, we were. That was a, yes, very pleasantly surprised. One thing I'll say about this as well is something that Johnny's done with a script is he's really created a layered society here. You know, they're just little words and phrases and things dropped in there that just make you feel that this is a society that has a history and has a structure. We've got consuls, we've got proctors. proctors yeah. Mm. You know, we haven't just got the leaders and a, you know, a, a small society group and guards. No, or I agree. Uh, and something else that really helps is a designer on this. And I want to say John Black. I don't know if I got that name right at all, but I think it's. Um, is that right? I or, think it's right. I'll look it up and check. Director, I've still got my I don't book know, in front but, of me. All oh, right. Um, Director of John Black. Director John Black. Oh, yes. but uh, I mean oh, he did a great the job. But the, the designer, but but again, what a fantastic job he mm. did it. He did on that, um, uh, and I, you know, I thought it must be on the DVD. You know, the designs of the gates and things, and so much effort went into it, um, and the costumes look fantastic as well. So everything, um, and again, it's a studio. Again, here, here we got a story that's entirely studio yeah. bound, but it almost doesn't feel like it. It never you know, quite convinces you, obviously, that you're out of doors because it is all on VT. Yeah. And if you look closely enough, you mm. can tell that everything's not really made of, you know, stone and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But it does look wonderful. And there aren't, there's, some of the sets are pretty big as well, which helps. They've taken a lot of time yes. and trouble to make it. Yeah, it's got scale. Yeah. Which yeah. you don't often get in Doctor Who. Um,. Mm. Oh, you're about to say something that I was going to respond to, and I've lost it. So I'll let you guys go because I promised I'd talk less. <laughs> I love what do you think of Jeffrey Beavers as the master then? Because he's kind of become the uh, the big finish master now. Oh, he has. Oh no, Andrew, of course. What's that? Jeffrey Beavers Jeffrey. is the master. Mm. Oh, brilliant, brilliant! And uh, again, he's really carved himself a, a, a niche in, in big finish as the master. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, anyone who's not heard him, go and listen to the Companion Chronicle Mastermind if you want to be, uh, to begin. That's a uh, that's a cracking tale by Johnny Morris. There's something um, about his voice. Plenty of others, it's, but that's a good one. It's quite sort of smooth, yes. but there's that sort of underlying menace there. Yeah. Yeah. Married to Carolyn John, of yes, course, that's played right. Liz Shaw. Uh, his daughter Daisy Ashford has done some work for Big Finish, including one of mine. It's coming out. Ah. So it's very nice to meet her when uh, we're recording that. Um, do you know that thing when you're six and something happens on the telly that's so exciting, you <laughs> jump up and you run to the kitchen and you tell your mother what it was? No. <laughs> oh, it must have happened. When something happens that's so exciting, you're just Earthshot. bursting to tell somebody, anybody, whoever's closest. Yeah. And when you're six, you just can't not do that. Mm-hmm. 
And I was about 10 when Keeper of Trakan was on, and I still did mm. that. <laughs> I still ran into the kitchen and told my mother the master was on the telly. What was her response? Sit down and watch it then. <laughs> <laughs> Good Some, something else about this, although although this is in the story, this is really the the, the only story where you, where it's the Doctor and Adric. Yes. Um, uh, and I think it works really well. Um, well, we talked about this a few weeks ago, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because mm. obviously Nyssa, she's not supposed to be a companion. She's just a guest character in the story, yeah. obviously. she comes, That's right. She comes back as a companion, well, mm. essentially, really, from Castrovalva onwards. So, yes, the Doctor and Adric is just the Doctor and a male companion, and it does work really well. And I think that's John Nathan Turner as much as it is anybody else looking at Doctor Who from a slightly different angle than previous producers had and just saying, well, why don't we do this? Mm. Because I think previous producers had perhaps had that thing in mind. If you've got two main characters, one should be male, the other should be female. And John Nathan Turner just says, whatever, let's have a boy instead. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with... You know, three companions in the the following season, which is a, a bit much. Yeah, I mean there are reasons for that, and I th- and one of them is that Christopher Bidmead was obviously outgoing, and I don't think anybody quite had the confidence because it had been so long since there's a regeneration. So I don't think anybody was quite prepared for what to do, and it was almost like throw as many characters in as possible, and if people can't follow the story, they'll follow the characters instead. Which is not the best reason for doing something. Mm. It's kind of a negative reason for doing something. You know, if you're going to introduce a character into a story, there should be a good reason for having that character there, other than that you're afraid to do the story without having that character. I mean, I really like Sarah Sutton, and I think the character of Nyssa could have really been a real standout companion, but because you had that dynamic where you had the three of them, it invariably ended up with one of them having to have a fainting fit or... Yeah, ended up being written out. Yeah, and she's really good in this. She is, yeah. And after this, she's really good throughout. I think, yeah, she's really very good. Actress. She's a very good actress throughout. But the character they needed yeah. to do, I think, what they needed to do was the fish out of water thing a bit more. Mm-hmm. They keep referring to the fact that you know she's lost her planet and her family and everybody she knows, and so there's a sadness about the character whenever they mention that which doesn't necessarily always feed through to the rest of the stories, particularly during the period when there wasn't a script editor. But what they never really address is she's grown up on this planet that, apart from the fact that it has kind of... It's one of those planets where there's technology and um, the Middle Ages going hand in hand almost, Mm -hmm. isn't there? It's It's the Meglos thing of religion and science, hand in hand, but done with much more subtlety. Yeah. But when she's taken off Tragen, you should have a lot more of Nyssa not taking in what's going on around her and not really comprehending things. And you never really get that because the other writers just say, oh, there's Nyssa. She knows a bit of science. Okay, Mm. that's her character. But then it's all probably a big relief to her because her mother's a nutter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. And also, do you not run the risk of having a a character like Katarina who's so out of her time that she's well no that's the great thing about nissa is Mm. because she comes from a society where you have got sort of the past and the future sort of meeting in the middle somewhere 
she's her, she she comes from a background where they're developed enough that nothing should be so completely alien to her that it would be beyond her comprehension mm-hmm. entirely, beyond her ability to understand. But there should have been more of that character. I don't know. There should be more of that character not understanding motives of the characters who come from a society that's grown up with a different background. Trakan's kind of very prim and proper almost. Yeah. So when she gets to somewhere like modern 20th century Earth, she should find it all a bit dirty and disgusting. Do you know what I mean? Just that kind of thing. Mm. They should well, that's where her a and Tegan could have kind of sparked off each other, but all it ended up with, it seemed to me, was that they just constantly bickered the whole time. Yeah. And basically they bickered with the Doctor. It's yeah. like each of the companions had a relationship with the Doctor, but not necessarily with one another. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I don't think as much I don't think there was as much of that as, as people remember. It's become a little bit of a trope. I think the um, trouble is mm. I think the trouble is without having a guiding hand on the tiller, it's the the because you've got An- Anthony Root there for six months on an attachment. And he's not doing creative writing. He's doing the nuts and bolts job of the script editor. And John Nathan Turner is kind of looking after the first half of season 19 himself, isn't he? Which is perhaps... Which, you know, which leaves me to think that... And this was my impression at the time, was that nobody quite knew what it was doing. But luckily we got Eric Sayward, so things looked up after that. (laughs) Right, shall we move on to the top choice? Go on, then. Which one could it be? Uh, well, we've done everything else, so it can only be one thing, can it? Oh, yeah. Well, go on, then, Mark. It's Legopolis. Your... It is Legopolis. I mean, is anybody... <laughs> does anybody disagree about that having come top? Yeah, I'd put Ke- oh. I'd put Keeper of Trakan above it, personally, but that's me. Yeah, what I mean is, is, does anybody think it doesn't deserve to be up there or thereabouts? Because, uh, like I say, I think it's nice that it's like, about it. I think it's nice oh. that it's 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 popular because it's uh, yet another quite brave story, really, isn't it? It's very original. I mean, Chris is such an original thinker. I think each of his stories is, you know, got got you know one or two elements in it you, you, that you can almost not imagine any other writer coming up with. Like the idea, you know, the the idea of lining the TARDIS in the Thames to open the doors to flood it out, you know. Um, although Stephen Moffat wrote a short story about that, I think, didn't he? Where um, he points out if, if that had actually worked, if it had actually happened, it would have emptied the Thames. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, it's a, there's a yeah. Stephen Moffat wrote a story where it's a, a police. The, t- the Thames has been basically emptied, uh, and a police officer wanders up to the TARDIS in the middle of the this muddy trench that's left, <laughs> uh, demanding an explanation. So. And I like the TARDIS yeah, within the original. TARDIS as well. That's kind of cool. Yes, yeah. What does anybody think of the introduction of Tegan? Hmm. I remember liking her very much right from mm. the off. Hmm. Quite a sparky and character. Then, yeah, yeah. It's quite tragic, really, isn't it? I'm back to tragedy. It was nice to see the shrunken dolls yeah, again. Yeah, it? losing her auntie Vanessa. Scrun- to the, the shrunken, bo- shrunken the bodies. The tissue compression eliminator. That we'd read in the target yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> we'd seen that. So, and the illustration in Terror of the Autons as well, where you actually get to see the picture, if I'm right, of the character in the sandwich box. Am I right or am I wrong on that? I could be wrong, actually. 
I seem to remember seeing a picture somewhere of the character in the sandwich box. And so when the tissue compression eliminator comes up in Legopolis, I was jumping for joy. I mean, Anthony Ainley is, is obviously having a ball. Yeah, he's obviously... It, it became apparent afterwards that he was kind of born to play the master almost. He enjoyed <laughs> playing that role so much that he gave up acting and just did that, didn't yeah. he? <laughs> I think it was that and cricket were his two loves, I think. Yeah, which is read. astonishing, really. And what about Logopolis and the Logopolitans as well? Again, such an original idea, the idea of Matt had been created from people intoning um, it's pretty bonkers, formulae. It's as bonkers as you like, but <laughs> you go with it, you know, I absolutely went with it. Um, oh, other innovations, we've got the first use of the cloister bell. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is an absolutely set part of Who now. It's featured a number of times in New Who. Um, and I think also times. the incidental music as well really helps to set the scene. It's very sort of doom-laden the whole way through. Yes. Yeah. And it kind of... Oh, and, and again, a clever thing, again with the arc, mm-hmm. CVEs, again. Yeah. Uh, come back. They, this is where, you know, that seed that's planted, if you like, early on in the season comes back because the CVEs, it turns out, have been manufactured by the Logopolitans mm-hmm. to protect the universe from entropy. Mm. Uh, that's great. I, I you know, I, I love all that. Yeah, using elements from earlier on in the season. And there are some neat ideas, like the whole thing of the TARDIS getting shrunk down and the, I think it's the Doctor gets trapped yeah. inside it, if I remember right. I haven't watched yes. it for a few years. Yeah, yeah. That was a cliffhanger. Mm, yeah. yeah. Block transfer get... computation, isn't it? Is that the word? That's the word. That's it. Block transfer computation, yeah. Fine. And we also get uh, the introduction of... Well, people moan nowadays that the regeneration seems to be kind of a standard regeneration that's always the same from one Doctor to another. But essentially, you get the introduction here of a regeneration that will essentially stay the same throughout the 80s. Yeah, definitely acted mm-hmm. as a template, didn't it, for what came after it? And the interesting thing was, and I don't know whether Barry Letts had any influence over this whatsoever, but they, not the regeneration itself and the effect, but the use of the Watcher mm. harkens back to the Choji yeah. Kang Po thing in planet of the spiders when barry letts wrote a regeneration story i don't know whether mm. barry letts and christopher bidmead ever sat down and talked about you know maybe chris bidmead said to barry letts you know tom's leaving i'm the story i'm writing is going to have to be a regeneration story and barry letts said oh let me tell you about regeneration <laughs> stories chris and maybe i, I don't know i think there's so many elements in logopolis are original well, not, to it, but <laughs> i think they're all chris uh, no, I, 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 yeah, you... it's got it's got Chris Chris's original thinking all over it. I think mm-hmm. it makes sense for the Doctor as a time traveller to have some kind of <clears throat> premonition or sign of what's coming. I would have thought it's always made, does, it's always yeah, made sense bridge. to me. <laughs> what are you saying to himself? You've only got two days left, mate. You've got three episodes. And they're going to take place in two days. You go into a place called Logopolis. You meet some funny little people. <laughs> yeah. Stay, and, stay uh, away from high places. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that effect, I'm afraid, does let it down rather badly. Where Which they, uh, the, where they use the cardboard cutout of the master oh. to try and sell the fact that the doctor's turning oh. on the. That's yeah. the one that Ian Levine's employed in some of his uh, recons, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's a photographic 
blow up, isn't it? Mm, uh, that's yeah. in the back of the shot where he's in the doorway. That's right. Yeah. yeah. To try and so that they can turn the camera rather than having to turn the doctor on the um, thing that's he's about to fall off. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit nasty, I'm afraid. Then you got Tegan's reaction to the fall is slightly behind the other two as they're watching him fall down. <laughs> Do you know what? That's the easiest thing in the world to <laughs> to sort out. You just throw something in the air yeah. so that all three eye lines yeah. go at the same time. Did nobody think of that? But this is a Peter Grimwade one, like Full Circle was. Mm. And like Full Circle, it also has a very strong direction, a very strong sense of knowing what it wants to do and accomplishing it. And I think the only thing, I mean, okay, I'm famously on record. Legopolis is far from being one of my favourite stories, but I do appreciate, I do appreciate that that's just a matter of taste, mm-hmm. rather than that I think it's a poor story necessarily. I think the only thing that lets it down in the production is the model effects of Legopolis. It's really hard to sell that that's a planet. I'm afraid. But that's it. Everything else about it looks and moves and the acting. Peter Grimway does a brilliant job. Mm. And I can see Mm. and I can see why for a lot of people this is a very popular story. But yeah, they did vote Logopolis top and it is my least favourite story of the season so <laughs> I was never going to be able to disguise it terribly well. Peter, <laughs> Peter brought back one of the cast of Full Circle as well for this, Adrian Gibbs who played uh, Rysik, one of the uh, citizens at the Riverside in uh, episode one. He plays the Watcher. Oh really? Yeah. Ah. Oh. There you go. Oh that's what directors do. They use people they mm. trust, don't they? Yeah. It's um. It's- See, as Chris... just sorry, Simon, come back to you in a second, yeah. but I was going to say, on the subject of The Watcher, I don't know if this was a rumour or whether this was just something I got into my head, but I was convinced for a long time afterwards that Peter Davison was inside that costume. Mm. <laughs> no. No, I know. I've heard, I've heard that rumour before. Oh, but, really? But no he, no, he didn't turn up until the uh, did a regeneration recording. Yeah. Go on, Simon. It's a nice idea. It's a nice idea. Yeah. Well, I was going to say along the same lines. I I thought the same thing, Joe. It made perfect sense to me for it to be. Oh, sorry. I... No, no, it's oh. fine. Um, but I'd love to hear a proper interview with Chris Bidmead about his his take on the Watcher. I find that sort of thing fascinating. The idea behind it of of where because I would have thought someone like him, he would be able to explain where it is in the Doctor's timeline and how it manifests and all this sort of thing. He's probably thought it all through. Yeah, but he might not want to. <laughs> he might not want to explain. The story works better if you don't quite know. No, no. No, no, no one likes to be asked to explain the story. <laughs> it's like been asked it's been like being asked to explain a joke, you know. Yeah. I'm not asking to explain Megalos, I'm asking to explain mm. Legopolis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. Um I was just looking through um on a website here and it was saying about sorry going back to the Keeper of Trakan, I didn't realise Joanna Lumley was up for Cassia at one point oh really mm, there's a few well known actresses uh, who were who were up for Cassia but I was trying to find that designer for, for Andrew 
I'm glad they didn't. I don't think I was that say, I can't imagine anyone apart from Sheila Ruskin playing her now, really. No, yeah. no, absolutely not. Um, I would just I'm to, who, who else was up for Mina in uh, the Leisure Hive? I want to see. Was it was it Jean Marsh? Oh really? Oh, yeah. uh, well, that could have been interesting. Actually, if I knew, it would have been worth mentioning. But because I don't actually, know, I <laughs> kept my mouth shut. Um, production designed by Tony Burra on Keeping All right, Track, yep, and yep. costume designed by Amy Roberts. I mean, they're both brilliant. Does it say if he did any others? Uh, Tony Burr. Uh, that was a first-rate job. There. Bear in mind, we're getting towards the end of the series as well. You know, the, potentially the budget. Yeah. You know, typically the budget is running low, and that's when you start to get cheap sets. But, oh, but oh, I was saying the other day. Yeah. By the time you get to this point in the series, people like the producer and the script editor. I was saying the first story that goes into production has their one hundred percent attention. The seventh story that goes into production has less than 20% of their attention and yet here they are pretty much make like a series finale in the modern series mm. they they're still managing to find enough attention to give it to make it look and feel like something special and Christopher H Bidmead still manages to write the script even though at this point he must have been all over you know script meetings with people like you as your stories were going into production and he was still trying to get this one written it's quite an amazing juggling job. Yeah, I, I wouldn't agree at all with, with the attention slipping. That's what I'm saying. Um, that, and I, but that's I think what you'd become, expect you know, to happen, is what mm. I'm saying. And also, this series is John Nathan Turner's first season in charge, um, and Tom's last, so it's you know it's a huge series for him, so he can't afford to take his eye off the ball. Mm. Mm. Well, what I meant, Andrew, was in physical terms, yeah. that you can't be... He, Christopher H. Bidmead can't be sitting at his typewriter writing the script for episode three of Castrovalva if he's sitting in a meeting with you or Terence Dix or someone. I meant in physical terms. Yeah, I mean, at that time, they'd be preparing for the next series anyway, but potentially at the start of the season, you've actually got more balls in the air than you have oh, yeah. towards the end of it because you've got more behind you than you've got in front of you. Yeah. So yes. I don't know if that necessarily holds up. Well, maybe it's the other way around um, then. Uh, but I think... Yeah, just the thing. Typically, with the seasons, you would be, you know, the, the budget would be getting stretched. But you know, you're you're running out of options. Typically, at this point of the season, you'd be running out of options. To say, okay, you can have that extra bit of budget to do this or whatever. More likely, you're saying actually we have to cut back even more now because we're running out of money. Unless you keep stuff back for the final story, or whatever. Mm. Um, but uh, okay, you know, a very very good standard throughout throughout the whole thing and finished very much on a high as far as I'm concerned. Uh, just, just very briefly, I just looked up Tony Burrow, the production designer of Keeper of Trarkin. I don't know whether you think this is moving downhill or not. Keeper of Trarkin, mm. then he did Four to Doomsday. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yes. Then oh, Black right. Orchid. Then yes. Warriors of the Deep. Oh. And finally The Two Doctors. Yes. So it's all the, it's all the spaceships, isn't okay. it? Okay. Mm. Apart from Black Orchid, obviously. <laughs> and on that note... Mm. We've been talking for long enough. <laughs> um, so I think season 18, then, we can all agree it's wonderful, right? I couldn't disagree. It's, a, it's, a de <laughs> it's definitely a gem. And Legopolis, we can all agree that is deserving of the best story, and that's wonderful too, right? Mm. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely agree. I've got yes. my teeth clenched here. No! <laughs> Actually, you know what? I sat down and looked at these seven stories and the, my big problem with season 18 is probably 
99% of my problem with it is that I quite like my Doctor Who when it's pulpy. And, you know, the Doctor's making jokes and it's fun. Mm. And it's lively. And season 18 is very sedate and not lively. And it's not very pulpy. It's kind of... So my problem with it is not with what it is, but with what I prefer. Do you know what I mean? It's... I'm a... There are, so, there are so many different tones in Doctor Who. Yeah. And I think 18 has got a particular tone that was different to what went before it. Again, going for a slightly older audience as well. Um, it's just not uh, my tone. You know? It's as simple as yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. And I looked, <laughs> and I sat down and I thought, right, we're doing season 18. And I looked at the seven stories and I thought, right, I don't want to do a po- podcast where I'm talking for 90 minutes and being curmudgeonly. I'm going to have to. <laughs> I'm gonna, have to talk... yeah. uh-huh. I'm gonna have to not be curmudgeonly about these seven stories, and then I looked at them and I thought, well, that's a good story. Well, no, that's a great story. Well, that story's really good, and actually, that one's not supposed to be good, but it is good. And by the end of it, I'm thinking, well, actually, there's seven stories that actually, individually, on a story by story basis, I like. <laughs> hey. Yeah. So. Uh... But next week, I'm going back to being curmudgeonly about it. And this is the only <laughs> time I will be nice about season 18, right? Fair <laughs> enough. You're allowed. You're allowed that. Okay. Well, it's definitely too late to go through those messages. But, Andrew, thank you for joining us again. Thanks very much. I mean, I think, as you know, I was a little reluctant at first. And um, it's a little uncomfortable at times. But uh, <laughs> it, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've, I've really enjoyed it. It was okay, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it? And Mark and Simon. That was good. Mm. Yeah, and I was going to say, sorry, go, no, I was just going to say, no, I mean, it's, you know, and I, I, I genuinely mean that. It, 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 the nice thing with it, I, I don't want to be in a position of being critical of things, but the things with season 18, obviously leaving full circle aside, but I genuinely, genuinely, and objectively think it's a really, really good run of stories. And, um, so it's it's easy to say and be genuinely positive about it. Because we we kind of try to look at the stories from the inside out anyway to kind of get the the proper mm. proper fix on them really, yeah, rather than yeah. than just looking on face value. It's 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 lovely to hear from you, really. I think it's a balancing act when we do these season podcasts between mm. looking at each individual story on its own merits. And, and looking the at the bigger picture and trying to, yeah, and seeing how the pieces of the jigsaw fit together. Mm-hmm. And actually, yeah. and if you look at this, it's probably, like I said earlier, it's probably the best jigsaw puzzle that classic Doctor Who ever had. I think so. I think so. I, I'll tell you, one of the, one of the things I was, I was hesitant about as well, I didn't want, with me being here, and we're talking about all the stories, obviously, mm. I didn't want in any way inhibit anything you might want to see negatively about it. But uh, but it's been you know it it it's it's been really good to to discuss it with you. It's been cathartic, but like I say, I'm going <laughs> back to. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Jr. I had a similar experience with season seventeen, which I didn't take too kindly to at all. Yeah. Uh, on broadcast, but uh, I've been kind of turned round on that, particularly around the stories. Um. Uh. So issues perhaps with the with the production. Yeah. The stories. Yeah. But, um, for example, Nightmare of Eden. Ah, oh, I love um, that story. It's great. Then, as a story, yeah, yeah. And it was the memory cheats of actually, uh, the podcast that turned me around on that. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Because I thought, well, 
Stephen Josh really like it. Hang on, let me have a think for a minute. Let me have, a, let me have another watch. Watched it with my daughter again, who absolutely adored Some it. Some great actually, ideas. The first time I, I kind of saw actually, yeah, the story is really good. Mm. Yes. Mm. Anyway, and the... we're, we're talking about another season. <laughs> well, yeah. Mm. yeah. And on that subject, I think, mm. I, well, we did the podcast on a few weeks ago, and we came to the conclusion, I came to the conclusion, the only season of Doctor Who where I think the demerits outnumber the merits is season 23. I think that was so filled with problems from the start. And we didn't sort of just rag on it endlessly. We discussed <laughs> how and why it had come to be what it was and why I didn't like it. So mm. I think if you're gonna if you're gonna say that you don't like something, I think you should be able to back that up with saying why you don't like something. And also if you like something as well. Yeah. Not just to say it's wonderful, you know, but but you know, again to back it up. And and the the great thing is, you know, there are there are so many. Every story has got, I think, someone who loves it and someone who who is at the other end of the extreme. Mm. And look at we just had Doctor Who magazines just uh, released the you know the poll of stories and Rings of Akaten is right down near the bottom. I love the Rings of Akaten. I really do. I could watch that on a loop. Uh, and I know that's not a common view, but I I do, and I just don't understand. It's not that uncommon a uh, view in this room, though, Andrew. To no, be I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear it. I I when that when that broadcast finished, I was got back, went on Twitter. Went, what what I don't understand this. Yeah. Um, I I really didn't understand it. Um, you know, I I do. Uh, you know, I, I love that story, but a lot of people don't. Um, and sometimes it's just what you know what pushes your buttons. Whatever, yeah. We were like we were like that with Night of the Doctor, weren't we? Was it Night of the Doctor where there was a really negative response to it, and we absolutely adored it? I said Time did. of the Doctor. Uh, oh, Time of the Doctor was it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, no Night of the Doctor. Everyone loved, didn't they? Yeah, Time of the Doctor. <laughs> of course it was. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, before we discuss anyway, the entire right. history of Doctor <laughs> Who, <laughs> right? I'm not entirely sure what's happening next week because I do have something planned, but until it actually happens. I'm not going to try and say what it is. But I think in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be talking about Series 1 with Christopher Eccleston. So that'll be fun. Mm. Mm. But until then, I was JR. <laughs> I was Andrew. I was Mark. I was Lee to, I was Lee to begin with, and now I've been Andrew. <laughs> I'm still Mark. And unfortunately, I'm still Simon. <laughs> and we will speak again soon. Cheers, guys. <laughs>